Welcome to the Commons Cast. We're glad to have you here. We hope you find something meaningful in our teaching this week. Head to commons.church for more information. On the Commons team. Again, happy Canada Day, everybody. I've worked in churches for almost 20 years now, so long weekends don't really like kind of register for me in the same way because I always, always go to church. But I think the most exciting thing about my Canada Day long weekend this year is that Audible is having a special Canada Day sale. That's right, everybody. You know what, I didn't even buy anything, but I just knew that I could. I had access to like 150 audiobooks for $5.95 each. So, I mean, the weekend isn't over. Things could get really crazy for me this Canada Day weekend. But I do want to actually take a more serious turn. Some of you may be tracking with the update shared this weekend about the AGM that took place in our denomination, the Evangelical Covenant Church. Now, I am going to speak that update as well this morning, and Scott has joined me on the platform to kind of show that unity of our team. He's here just to look nice. (laughs) Yay, Scott. But most sincerely, you guys, um, it is with very heavy hearts that we let you know that the AGM, the Annual General Meeting of the ECC, has voted to remove two pastors in our denomination, and they voted to involuntarily remove First Minneapolis Covenant Church from the ECC, and at present, this decision does not directly affect commons, and we maintain that there is a place for commons within the Covenant Church here in Canada, but we also want our community to know that this does not change our commitment to a third way together through contentious issues. At commons, there is no litmus test beyond faith in Christ and commitment to treat each other with generosity and equality, and that local commitment to each other and to the LGBTQ community remains unchanged for us at Commons by this week's decision. Our team is prepared to voluntarily surrender our ministry credentials to the ECC if that is requested, but despite our differences on how LGBTQ persons are included in community, we believe that our voice within the Covenant Church in Canada is more vital now than ever. So we are committed to staying. We are committed to contributing. We are committed to helping the ECC find a new way forward for as long as they will permit us to stay in that conversation. Generosity and kindness and resolve in equal measure is what we trust and how we will hold commons together through this season as we follow the Spirit's leading. If anyone is hurting from this decision and this development, please, please, please reach out to us. We are creating space to respond and be present to those who have been injured by the decision of the ECC. Scott, myself, our staff, and the board would be more than happy to have any number of conversations with you. We know that this is hard. I find it very hard. So may the grace and peace of God be with us all. Thanks, Scott. So now, 
we head into the last installment of our series on change, which is, I think, rather appropriate, don't you think? So in our series on change, we are guided by a few questions. The first question is, what grounds you in change? And in Ezra and Nehemiah, we see that place, place where we are, is a really big deal to the people of God. Of course, place is a big deal to them. Their sacred story includes a creation poem, which calls the land good. And their sacred story includes an exchange where the divine appears to a man through a burning bush and calls the ground holy. And their sacred story includes a parted sea and promised land and a holy temple, all places where God shows up. Place matters to the people of God. So when the people are torn from their place by the Babylonian Empire beginning in 597 BCE, they feel so lost. And years later, when the Persia's King Cyrus says, you are finally free to go home, they are so pumped about this. And they pack up their like little wheelie suitcase, you know, you can just see it through the desert, maybe you can't. I can see it. And, and soon after their, their arrival, they rebuild this altar and they rebuild their temple. And sure, the people have all kinds of mixed feelings, but they're finally home and they are rebuilding. But the thing about place in these biblical texts is that place is actually never permanent. Place changes. And there's something for us here. There's an affirmation that to be grounded in change is to be open to all of the places God will show up in our story. One day you find God in a worship service. The next day you're aware of God's presence maybe in an art gallery. And there's something so grounding about the limitless places God will show up in your own story when you are in the thick of change. Now the second question we ask in this series is what guides you forward in change? Now I argue that as memoirs, Ezra and Nehemiah guides through the particular personal experiences of others. But as hyped as Ezra and Nehemiah are in the story, they actually don't stick around the narrative forever. In fact, we see a significant shift in the text when we compare Ezra and Nehemiah with other central characters across the Bible. More than most, these guys actually, they just kind of fade away. They simply do not do the work of rebuilding alone. They just aren't those kinds of heroes. The community actually is. It's the community that rebuilds. It's the community who rededicates themselves to the, the divine. It's the community which bands together against all kinds of opposition. And rabbi and scholar Tamara Eskenazi says that this shift to community expresses the greater democratization of society. So those who lack power move into central spaces and the scriptures move from the hands of the few to being understood by all. The guidance we find in change may first come from a few, but it's meant for more. God's guidance belongs to everybody. So today, the question that we ask in times of change is this, what actually kind of guards you in change? We are going to cover 13 chapters in Nehemiah, so buckle up, long weekenders. We are going to do this, but first, of course, let's pray together.
our great and loving God. You hold all of creation. We are so glad to enjoy all that you have made. The summer sun, the flowers that bloom, the flowing rivers through our city. We are grateful, so grateful for this place. The land shared with us by our indigenous sisters and brothers. Together we take a moment to reflect on some of the change in our own lives. Some of the things that we are learning, the places we are a part of, the transformation that we sometimes resist, but you patiently guide us through. Jesus, you share in our human stories our sorrow and our joy, our struggle and our success, our living and our dying. So we can know that we are not alone. So Holy Spirit, you are at work in and through us and through all the change. We do give you thanks. Amen. So I'm curious, those of you in the room here with me, how many of you have spent time in Christian school? Or Bible college? Heyo. <laughs> or seminary? Well, I went to Bible college after my public high school education, and the funny thing to me about Bible college was this imaginary wall around the place. And it was meant to protect students from the world, you know, from worldly things like drinking and drugs and fornication. And this imaginary wall had such a presence at my school that people called it the bubble. As in the bubble, it is meant to keep you safe, to protect you from harm. It's to protect your virtue, your virginity, your tutelage. And honestly, I didn't care that much about the bubble. I grew up around drinking, so abusing it just didn't feel like a big temptation to me. I loved most of the things that I was learning, and I was actually really lousy at dating. Frankly, I was more interested in ministry over making out. I mean. What was wrong with me? But still, I had this epiphany in Bible college that popped the bubble. Some friends had gone to see a movie and they walked out of the theater before it ended because they found the film just so offensive, particularly when it came to all the nasty expletives. Now I know you're wondering, what movie could this be, Bobby? And I shall tell you, it was the 1997 Academy Award winning Good Will Hunting. Oh. So after friends reported back how offensive they felt that this movie was, I made no plans to go and see it for myself. And then I took this class on spirituality and culture. And rather than see the culture as harmful, our professor taught us to read the culture for messages that mean something to our humanity and maybe even to our faith. So instead of telling us to stay away from all these F-word movies, he challenged us to go and watch them. In particular, he said that if we went and watched Goodwill Hunting, he'd meet us after the movie and talk all about it. And he did just that. So after this conversation, 
which I loved. I never watched a movie the same way again. Movies and music and art, all of it began to just teem with bigger meaning. And to this day, Goodwill Hunting and All the Nasty Expletives is one of my absolute favorite films. Our relationship with protective bubbles and boundaries and walls is important in change. There are times when you do need a protective layer, a buffer between you and someone who hurts you, a bubble between you and an institution that you just do not trust, a guard against the toxic ways that you maybe even just think about yourself or someone you try really hard to love. And as we look at Nehemiah, we see the importance of a wall to this community as they're caught up between world empires and feeling under a threat. So right away you'll notice that Nehemiah is more fun to read than Ezra. As a character, Nehemiah is emotional and he's resolute. And some of the episodes they read like an action film with Nehemiah's character maybe played by, you know what, honestly, I'm terrible with action movies. I actually find them quite boring. So I had to ask my husband, Jonathan, who he thought would play Nehemiah in a movie. And after a very lengthy exchange, Jonathan said Nehemiah should be played by Daniel Day-Lewis. Solid, right? Other options include Gary Oldman, who was serious black for all you Harry Potter nerds, and Tim Robbins. So guys, with grit, right? These actors with some grit. So Nehemiah, he's this gritty guy with his feet actually kind of in two worlds. Uh, Nehemiah is this cupbearer in the Persian Empire and he is a Yahweh worshiper who cares about the Jewish remnant back in Palestine trying really hard to rebuild Jerusalem. Only trouble is it's just not working out so well back home in Jerusalem. In the first chapter, Nehemiah finds out that the people in Palestine are in great trouble and disgrace because the wall around Jerusalem is broken and the gates are burned. Nehemiah is torn up by this news. He weeps, he fasts, he prays. And here's how the prayer begins. Lord, the God of heaven, the great and awesome God who keeps his covenant of love with those who love him and keep his commandments. Let your ear be attentive and your eyes open to hear the prayer your servant is praying before you day and night for your servants, the people of Israel. Now, this prayer goes on for several verses, and it borrows heavily from Deuteronomy. It's an ancient and a very trusted way to speak to God. It begins with this lofty expression addressing the divine to God so other that we can hardly even speak your name. To God so great that you dwell above us. To God so awesome that we plead with you day and night so you will simply see us and hear us. And this language for God is, it's good. It's fine, it's even quite beautiful. I mean, when you need help, don't you want a God like mighty enough to crush your enemies? And worthy enough for all of your praise and all knowing enough to hear your confession? Yeah, maybe you do want a God like that. But is that all you want? 
and more. Can your lofty language about God actually build a wall that puts distance between you and the divine? Dorothy Soul argues that lofty language can limit our life with God. Soul was a German theologian who took great care with her theology in the shadow of the Holocaust. Both Nehemiah and Soul lived in the shadow of tragedy and trauma. But where Nehemiah looked up to heaven, Soul actually looked around on the earth. And the two of them, they pray very different prayers to the same God. Soul speaks of God who was powerless and friendless when people did not stop the death camps in Nazi Germany. A God whose spirit had nowhere to dwell, whose righteous sun did not shine. A God who is minority, laughable, politically suspect, and from a pragmatic perspective, unsuccessful. Now, before you freak out about descriptions of the divine like this, remember the face of God that we see in Jesus, one so unpopular, so despised, so frustratingly humble that he would rather die than fight back. Now, don't get me wrong. There is a time when your lofty language to God will guard you in change. But there is a time when all of that lofty language can result in you waiting for your higher power to act when really your higher power is waiting for you. Thankfully, Nehemiah is actually pretty active in participating in his own prayer. So let's check in with his action. In chapter two, King Artaxerxes notices how distraught Nehemiah is over the news of a tattered Jerusalem. So the king permits Nehemiah to go to Jerusalem to see about this crumbling wall. And Nehemiah heads home. And by chapter three, Nehemiah rallies the people and puts them to work to reconstruct Jerusalem's broken down wall. And what we find in chapter three is a long list of names and families who work together to rebuild the wall. Now, before a long list of biblical names puts you to sleep, know this. Theologian Johanna Boss says that all of the lists of names in Ezra and Nehemiah actually work like cement to hold the structure together. And in this particular list, we have a repeated phrase that you can't help but notice. 14 times in the chapter, we read next to them. So here's a sample. Meremoth, son of Uriah, the son of Hakotz, repaired the next section next to him. Meshulam, son of Berechiah, the son of Meshezabel, made repairs and next to him. Zadok, son of Baanah, also made repairs. And check this out. In verse 12, we have this cool detail. Shalom, son of Halohesh, ruler of half district of Jerusalem, repaired the next section with the help of his daughters. Women construction workers, you guys, in the ancient world. I mean, that's pretty cool. Work is work, right? 
Now, the NIV uses the pronoun him in the phrase next to him, but the Hebrew syntax is literally third person plural them, and I love this. It highlights the shift back to the community. No one builds this wall alone. Not Nehemiah, not the holy priests, not some unconventional family with these really tough daughters. They work to build the wall together. It's them. And there's wisdom in building protective walls together. Maybe your friends, they warn you that your relationship to jealousy and envy is kind of taking over. So together, you work to build a wall that protects contentment and welcomes gratitude and settles into simplicity. Maybe your partner reflects back to you that your colleagues at work are turning you towards bitterness and maybe some petty grievances. So together, you and your partner work to establish just a signal in the day, maybe through a text message that reminds you that you should pull away from those conversations that make you smaller than you actually are. Maybe your therapist helps you to see that your family system is getting in the way of your emotional health. So together, you justify the space that you need to take for your own healing. I am so thankful for those who have built walls with me in my life. Establishing these walls have brought new chapters in self-awareness, big steps in personal growth, and even some brand new beginnings. But, but, when we are healed, when we are a little more whole, do we still need these walls? Is the point to stay behind the wall forever? Or is there a time when you should step outside the wall that you've built? Maybe even add like a door or a window, or more radically, start to tear that whole wall down. Yes, the wall in Nehemiah protects God's people from harm. Yes, the sacred story of their faith includes walls that define their identity, but the walls do not keep God's people safe forever. In fact, the one who shows us the face of God in human flesh challenges everything we think we know about walls. Walls will protect you. In a time of change, they will. But there will come a point in your relationships, in your interpersonal world, where walls start to do more harm than good. When walls just aren't needed anymore. When you actually get to tear those walls down. But there's more change to come in Nehemiah, and this change involves the threat that lurks in Nehemiah's bigger world. It's not as simple as brick and mortar for our boy Nehemiah. First, he faces some pretty catty opposition. So in chapter four, we read, when Sanballat heard that we were rebuilding the wall. He became angry and was greatly incensed. He ridiculed the Jews and in the presence of his associates and the army of Samaria, he said, what are those feeble Jews doing? Will they restore their wall? Will they offer sacrifices? Will they finish in a day? Can they bring the stones back to life from those heaps of rubble burned as they are? 
In the face of this mudslinging, Nehemiah does a few interesting things. First, he prays a prayer for vengeance. You can find it in verses four and five. Nehemiah's prayer sounds like the prayers in the Psalms, which go, oh God, my enemies mock me. Oh God, fight for me. And next, Nehemiah works with his people to protect themselves if they are under attack. Those who carried materials did their work with one hand and held a weapon in the other. And each of the builders wore his sword at his side as he worked. And finally, Nehemiah gives them a signal. When, wherever you hear the sound of the trumpet, join us there. Our God will fight for us. So there's prayer, and there's swords, and there's trumpet blasts. And throughout this episode, the threat, it actually grows. In Sanballat, this governor gathers more powerful men from the region, and Nehemiah and the Judeans, they are completely surrounded. And when you evaluate the defense Nehemiah's people go to to guard themselves, it actually seems to work. At least it works to keep their enemies away, but it is so dang tiring. They work day and night. They are always at the ready. They never put their weapons down. I mean, it's good to be ready to protect yourself with a solid argument, with a stockpile of resources, with a scenario that you are ready to enact. But guarding yourself from opposition, it's exhausting, isn't it? So in a time of change, we really need to ask ourselves, how much threat am I really under here? And am I so busy guarding myself with words and walls and weapons that I have no energy to take care of the hurt and the pain that's actually inside of my walls, maybe even within my own heart? Because it's within Jerusalem, the city Nehemiah tries really hard to protect where the struggle of the community actually gets real. There's all this poverty and opposition, and those are the enemies within. So in chapter five, now the men and their wives raised a great outcry against their fellow Jews. Still others were saying, we have had to borrow money to pay the king's tax on our fields and vineyards. Some of our daughters have already been enslaved, but we are powerless because our fields and our vineyards belong to others. Mary Leith says that the ancient world we're looking at was characterized by social inequality. The majority of the population consists of peasants and artisans, along with, get this, just itinerant workers who lived off of their wits and charity. And ethnographers and historians suggest that the governing class averaged about 1% of the population, but controlled as much as a quarter of the national income. Sounds a little bit like some worlds I know. Well, Nehemiah, he is sensitive to this outcry. He's angry even. And this makes him institute uh, the Mosaic Law. He says, quit collecting interest. Give back fields and vineyards. Take an oath and do what you promise. And what's kind of off kilter here is that while the people prepare to fight the enemy outside of their walls, they actually ignore who they are meant to be in the world. These are the people who see themselves in union with the divine. 
A God with endless love and kindness, a God who never breaks promises, a God who invented justice for the poor. And in union with God, they are meant to reflect God in every part of their communal life, and they do not do this. If a brother is in need, they walk away. If there is a debt, they demand a severe repayment. If they feel insecure, they take it out on their daughters. Rather than become a community of grace and the likeness of their God, they are a people of walls and debts and fears. We can get pretty stuck when we're only thinking about ourselves. So maybe it's time to challenge our question. Maybe the question to ask should be less about what guards you in change and more about your willingness to actually guard each other. Can you sit quietly enough just to listen to someone speak their doubt and their anger? Can you stomach the way that the people you love hurt each other? And can you not look away from that? Can you stand up and say no to a harmful decision, to a political posture, to a power that is used to make other people feel small? Of course you can, you can do all of that, but will you? Within the sacred story of scripture, there is a place for walls. Nehemiah and the community, they build one, and it keeps them safe. It maybe even saves their culture, but they will never flourish with that wall. Walls are functional, but grace is inspirational and aspirational. The Christian invitation to what guards you in change is not build a wall. It's practice resurrection. You can be healed and whole even after everything that you've lost. You can protect yourself, but there's something more profound when you suffer to protect each other. And you can look back and see that the very worst thing, the very worst change that ever happened in your life actually shaped the very best parts of who you are. And now you have something incredible to offer others. And in a strange turn of biblical events, Ezra steps back into the scene, either on account of an editing error or a more intentional message. And the reading of the law by Ezra in Nehemiah chapter eight is a pretty beautiful thing, except it's a bit, I don't know, how shall we say, it's a little bit utopian. Yes, Ezra says, the people listen to the law and they worship Yahweh, and yes, Ezra says that God gives life and is faithful and keeps promises, and yes, Ezra says that every part of their story has been shaped by the divine. Ezra says that God came down and was made known. Ezra says that God forgives, is gracious and compassionate, and yes, always, God acts faithfully even when we are wicked, but still, Ezra ends with this admission. We are slaves. Our bodies are ruled. Our livestock is not our own. We are in distress. And even further, the entire Ezra-Nehemiah saga finishes with Nehemiah trying really hard to reform the people of God and finally just throwing up his hands to say, you know what? Just remember me with favor, oh my God. Walls do not make for happy endings. 
So in the final scene of Good Will Hunting, the movie that I told you about at the beginning, we are left with this final image, an image of a horizon. And if you notice, the first scene started in walls. So by the end of the movie, the main character, Will, has faced the trauma in his life. He has torn down so many protective layers and walls, and he's finally ready to let love in. Now, we don't know what will happen to Will. Is this his happy ending? Maybe. Will Will get hurt again? Yeah, it's likely he will. But once you've worked to build a wall, and then you see that the wall just isn't needed anymore, you can withstand, I think, anything. The image of the horizon is super helpful for us in times of change. It's open. It's indefinite. A horizon invites the possibility of what is just beyond our reach. Change will rock you. It will refine you. And it can even save you. Do not shy away from change. And no, there is a time to lift your prayers to heaven and there is a time to drag prayers down to earth. There's a time to build a wall and there's a time to tear it down. There is a time to fight and to defend, but there is a time to suffer and to share. And through it all, may change bring you life. May you work through whatever is ahead of you to make you more whole. And may you sense God's infinite pleasure in all of the ways that you get to change. And may you share that freedom to change with one another. Let's pray together. Oh, great and loving and gentle God, you give us the breath of life and bodies that break and heal and minds that forget and remember. For all of this, we say thank you. Jesus, when we think of how you lived, not threatened by change, not abusive of power, not prescriptive in redeeming every life that walked or crawled to you, we are mindful that you, God, are so creative. And you will bring all things into their rightful place. The poor will feast, the hurting will heal, the powerful will be humbled to help. So spirit of the living God, present with us, here and now. Enter the places of change in our lives and will you use all of that to heal us of what harms us. Amen.